This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, I've got some news, which is there is actually an autumn statement happening in about a week and a half, even though obviously people are very much focused elsewhere due to very bad things happening around the world and also British politics having another bout of Nadine Doris and other horrible stories to talk about. But there is an autumn statement. It's coming on the 22nd of uh, November. Why is it coming on 22nd of November? Because that's exactly a week after we get a guaranteed fall in inflation that probably means that inflation will have halved at least on some measures, which obviously is what the government is focused on. So you'll get that next week, and then you'll get the autumn statement the week after where we can celebrate. Are you all going to celebrate? No, I don't think you are going to celebrate, but you know, it's good to have things to celebrate. So the Chancellor will be celebrating inflation halving at that autumn statement. But the question is, what else is he going to do? So we know those things are going to happen, but what else is going to happen? What are the Office for Budget Responsibilities forecasts going to be? What measures might we expect to see announced. What does that mean for the politics? Because you've probably all worked out by now that there's an election coming here. Yeah, I thought you've, you're bright looking people in the room today. So I think you've worked that out. So there's going to be an election. That's going to be sometime in a year's time. What does a sense of fiscal forecast? Because in Britain, one of the weird things, and there are many weird things about Britain, but what like the King's speech coming up in a few days. But one of the weird things is that fiscal forecasts matter a lot in British electoral politics in a way they don't in the United States. No one in like a presidential election is wheeling out the CBO's forecast. But in the UK, because we are very centralised, because the executive controls the legislature, so basically if the government has a fiscal policy, it can often actually implement it, which is not the case in lots of other countries. And we don't have a federal system, so there's not a lot of other borrowing going on. So the government can actually control the public finances in brackets, uh, at least in theory. The, um, they end up being incredibly central to every election, right? So we're going to be spending next year's election being like, does Rachel Reeves' £28 billion pose an existential crisis to the public finance forecast or not? That's what Darshini is going to tell you over and over <laughs> again. It's going to be really boring. It's really silly. That is what's going to happen. Because one of the things about life is even when you know something is batshit, it still happens. <laughs> like we know this is a stupid thing and we're still going to spend the next year doing it. So welcome to you know, our lives, people. Right, so that is the plan to help us navigate that um, thing. We're publishing a paper this morning, preparing the pitch. What is the autumn statement got in store? It's a much politer version of what I've just said. James Smith, one of the authors of that report, is going to give you a short version, but only about one in three of the slides from the report are in, the, uh, in what he's about to show you, which is showing that he's got some self-restraint and that you all should go away and read the report afterwards. And then we've got a great panel to cover the economics and the politics of what is coming. So you're first of all going to hear from Darshini David, who is newly-ish promoted to Chief Economics Correspondent at the BBC. Let's give her a clap. It's very impressive. As far as I can work out, she's still doing exactly the same thing. But it's very important. <laughs> it's very important to get, you know, little promotions now and again. We'd all like that. I wish I keep saying to them, can I have a promotion to something else? I'll keep doing exactly the same thing. You can pay me less, actually if you want, but it doesn't happen. The, um, anyway, then you're going to hear from Michael Saunders, who has escaped from the Monetary Policy Committee, so it's not his fault your mortgages are going up anymore. And he's now a senior advisor at Oxford Economics, and he's going to run you through, including some important things about what happens when the Bank of England is flogging loads of gilts at big losses. 
I know that's what you all woke up this morning wanted to know about, and that is what you're going to find out about. And then you're going to hear from Rosie Campbell, who's Professor of Politics at King's College and is often on your radio telling you about what is going on with the British public and their electoral preferences. The, um, speaking of batshit. Anyway, <laughs> right, so that is the plan for this morning. James, what is in your overly long report? All right. Uh, okay. Uh, well, thanks, Torsten, and good morning, everyone, and welcome, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. So I'm going to give you a whistle-stop through uh, what's going on with the autumn statement. As Torsten says, we've got 40 slides that give you the full lowdown, so I, I would recommend that, and uh, thanks to uh, co-authors of the Resolution Foundation for uh, doing all the, the hard work with that. Um, so let me start by, by saying that um, a really difficult economic backdrop basically means we're not expecting a big sort of policy-driven uh, fiscal event in just over two weeks' time. Uh, so the Chancellor will basically be preparing for that pre-election uh, fiscal event. And as part of that, the, uh, the forecast will take on even more significance. As Dawson was just saying, UK politics, already a big deal. It'll be even, even bigger. Um, but as we recover from uh, a major storm that no one could say the name of, so I won't try, um, I just want to remind you that forecasting is a pretty fraught business and can be, and can be pretty difficult. For those too young to remember this, I'm showing my age now, uh, this is Michael Fish who said there wasn't going to be a hurricane just before there was one. So um, forecasting is genuinely difficult. So as I stand before you about to talk about forecasts, keep that uncertainty in mind. Uh, so let me let me jump into what's going on with the forecast and let me start with the economy. And basically, this chart just shows how forecasts for growth this year have changed over time. And if you look back to March 2023, so the red diamonds here, you can see that the OBR was expecting the economy to contract in 2023. Fast forward to where we are now, we now expect the OBR to mark up to something around half a percent growth this year. So the near term outlook really is uh, a little bit better. But over the past couple of months, there's been very sort of clear signs that the economy is slowing and a bunch of short term indicators really now are in recession territory. And this chart just shows our financial markets based uh, indicator of recession risk. And that's back up to levels that uh, uh, are even higher than those seen prior to the financial crisis. So slowing economy uh, risk of recession is definitely the backdrop to this to this fiscal event. Uh, the other key change really is what's going on with inflation. So there's inflation everywhere that you're going to see that a lot in the OBR's forecast. And if you compare where the OBR was in the green line here to um, what's actually happened, inflation, yes, is falling very sharp, sharply, but it's, not, but it's not falling as quickly as the OBR expected. If you compare the Bank of England in price level terms, their blue forecast there, um, the price level is about 7% higher um, in the Bank of England forecast relative to uh, where the OBR were in March. And that's a massive change. Now, we don't think the OBR will quite go as far as that. So our guess of what they'll do is the red dotted line here. But there's still a lot more inflation, um, and that's going to be very important for the forecast. 
And if I show you what all this does to uh, our, what we think the OBR will publish for GDP, you can see on the left chart, we think real GDP will be a little stronger in the near term, but in 24 and 25, we think the OBR will actually mark down such that the economy won't be all that much changed in the, in the medium term. But there's a really big change on the nominal GDP side, and that's because of that higher inflation. So nominal GDP is about 5% higher than the OBR thought uh, back in March. And that's a, uh, that's a really big change here. Of course, higher um, inflation has come with higher interest rates. And back in March, we all thought uh, interest rates would peak at about four and a quarter, but the mortgage uh, hits have kept on coming and we're now at five and a quarter. So something like an extra percentage point on near-term interest rates, and all that matters for longer-term borrowing costs for the government as well. So rates across the board are a bit over uh, a percentage point higher than we thought back, uh, back in March. Now, what does all this do to the borrowing outlook? Well, um, it wouldn't be a fiscal event at the Resolution Foundation without a complicated borrowing chart. So I don't like to disappoint people. So here is here is one. I'll try and hold your, your hands through that. So the bars above the line are basically things that are pushing up on government borrowing. The things below the line are things that we think are uh, helping the government and pushing borrowing down. You can see in the green bars here the effect of higher interest rates. That's pushing up by something like 16 billion across the, uh, the, the, five, the five years of the forecast. And the blue uh, sort of hatched bars, they're the effects of higher inflation on spending. So this is mostly the, the sort of welfare budget where this uh, the triple lock, things like that, that really matter here. But you can see the big solid blue bars below the line, that's the effect of higher tax receipts. So we're seeing something like 20 billion higher tax receipts already this year. And we think that's going to continue given the larger economy in, in cash terms. And that's a really sort of significant change in terms of, uh, in terms of what, uh, what that's doing to the overall fiscal position. So how does that translate into policy space for the for the chancellor? Well, um, the chancellor is committed to getting uh, debt falling in the fifth year of the forecast. So look to the right of this chart. That's the key place to be. And the key thing you'll notice straight away is that we think the debt forecast as a share of the economy will be uh, will be much lower. That's mostly about higher nominal GDP, which is the denominator here, but it's also about uh, lower borrowing uh, coming down the track. But you can't quite, uh, for reasons that uh, Michael will get a little bit more into, you can't quite translate from borrowing to falling debt. And actually, when you look at the headroom against that uh, falling debt uh, objective, it's smaller than the improvement in borrowing. So if we think something around 10 to 15 billion, it could be larger than that, there's definitely uncertainty. But the key point here is that we think the effect of higher inflation will outweigh the effect of those uh, higher interest rates and we'll get more headroom. Now, we think it's pretty likely that headroom will still look quite small in historical terms. So the, the average uh, since 2010 is something like 25 billion in, uh, in terms of a, a sort of common comparison with, with these numbers. So uh, with a lot of uncertainty around, you might think the chancellor should be uh, keeping that 
uh, higher headroom and just really trying to um, you know, make sure he's ready for, for, for future shocks. But um, the, the other reason that the Chancellor shouldn't be putting in place lots of policy in response to this better fiscal outlook is the, the effect of inflation is really there in tax receipts, but it won't be recognised in what's going on with spending. So another complicated chart for you here. So um, uh, again, I'll try to help you through this. So this shows departmental spending, um, and the blue line is the total the departmental spending and you could see it's falling um, in the first few years of the forecast we've got three percent higher um, economy-wide price level that's equivalent to a, a sort of 19 billion cut in real terms for uh, for what's happening to departments but what when this, where this really gets scary is when you take out the effect of a bunch of departments where the government have said they're going to protect spending. So I'm talking about health, education, uh, defence, where there's you know, been clear commitments to increase spending. And when you look in green at what that implies for the unprotected departments, then you can see that the higher inflation we have really implies something quite uh, difficult in terms. So, those departments, you know, this includes justice, levelling up, home office, all of these departments are already in a difficult position. You can see that from the state of public services. But we're talking about something like a 16% fall in their budgets um, based on this inflation, based on the, the cash envelope. So this looks completely undel undeliverable. It's basically taking us back to George Osborne early 2010s level of, of cuts. And you know, this, all of this really looks um, absolutely like a total fiscal fiction. The thing that makes that worse is a bunch of tax uh, changes that we think are likely but probably won't be reflected in the forecast. So uh, I won't talk very much about this, but fuel duty is something people talk about a lot. Not uh, allowing it to rise would cause something like $4 billion. The government have said they want to... Uh, make full expensing on corporation tax permanent. That would be something like nine billion. And there's a big stamp duty threshold um, uh, cut coming. Cancelling that would cost uh, more. Anyway, you get the idea. There's big um, uh, potential tax cuts that are baked in here that make the position worse, make the scope for doing more policy, and make make the overall fiscal forecast more of a more of a fiction. Um, so that's what's going on with the forecast. One, let me finish with one policy decision the Chancellor must get right, and that is on benefits uprating. Now, there's going to be benefit cuts in the autumn statement. We already know that. We, the government is particularly concerned about a 40% rise in the um, uh, uh, ill health-related benefit budget uh, since 21-22, so there's, there's been a big rise there and they've already said that they're planning to make changes that will bring down spending there. But um, they haven't said what they're going to do in terms of uprating benefits and normal practices to do that in line with inflation. Uh, if they failed to do that, it would make the income situation, particularly for those on low income, so you can see the blue bars on the left chart here, were already in a pretty difficult position coming into the autumn statement. If you add on the pink bars, which is the effect of not operating benefits, all that would be a huge hit to income. So something like a £500 uh, hit to income next year um, 
uh, for around 9 billion people who are uh, uh, at least partially reliant on benefits. That would push something like 400,000 children into absolute poverty based on our uh, our forecast. So a really big hit. It's very clear that the Chancellor needs to uh, do that uprating. All right, that's my whistle-stop uh, tour over. So just give you a quick reminder, the economy is slowing, even though it's uh, been more resilient than expected. Uh, we, we think the effect, there's much higher inflation uh, and that'll boost tax receipts. That's only partially offset by what's going on with uh, debt interests. So we think headroom, the uh, policy space for the Chancellor could plausibly rise. We have 13 billion in our central case, but th this is an illusion and uh, it's not recognising the effect of inflation on spending. And the key uh, policy of uprating benefits, which uh, uh, not doing that would save about 4.2 billion, would have really big effects on uh, those on low incomes. Great. Thank you very much, James. Lots of great food for thought in there. The, um, uh, if you want to um, ask questions, there's loads of good ones already coming in, but it's hashtag um, autumnstat <coughs> on uh, Slido, but we can't answer them yet because we're still going to hear from the rest of the panel. So, Darshini, what are you expecting? What should we make of all this? What should we make of all this? Well, first of all, congratulations to James because he managed to squeeze all of that into just a few minutes. The full report is definitely worth a proper look through, but I've got to admit, James, I didn't find it the most uplifting accompaniment to Bonfire Night. Um, <laughs> But having said that, let me start off on a brighter note because uh, let's cast our minds back to a year and what we were dealing with around about this time, you know, with the mini budget, that jaw dropper, the remedial action that Jeremy Hunt then had to take to try and restore confidence in the markets and wider afield. And we're a long way away from that. We're back to pretty much business as usual. I'm not going to call the autumn statement boring and dull but it's going to be far more low key, I think, than what we saw a year ago. And that's not a complaint by any means, particularly when it comes to coverage at the BBC. Uh, talking of coverage, um, this has been quite a couple of years. Um, one of the things I've, I've come to saying is we are bigger than Love Island on team economics. Uh, and thank you for the lovely words about my right. new job. Congratulations again. Um, but it is partly in response to that, the fact that when you look at what audiences are interested in, we're up there in the top five every single week. You know, developments in the global economy, developments in the UK economy, the cost of living crisis, call it what you will, but we're right up there at the top of people's concerns. I'd love to say it's because we're so popular and they love our coverage. It's not. It's because they're that worried. So what are we likely to get out of this autumn statement? Uh, probably forecasts which, as you say, we're going to have those inflation figures next week, which will show the government is on track to meet that target of halving inflation this year. Probably out of luck and the action of the bank rather than any action taken by the government. Uh, we could also see them meeting that uh, ambition of growing the economy this year. But we are at that inflection point. We heard the Bank of England saying last week that they expect at least half of the impact of higher interest rates has yet to come through. Um, talking to one of Michael's replacements on the current MPC, they're saying, actually, we think it's more like three quarters. So there's a lot of pain stored in the system. So even though the government's going to say, look, we've pulled this off this year, um, people out there are feeling worse off and they know that things are going to get worse off. They're not going to be blinded by those kind of figures. So even though we have seen resilience, we're now looking at the risk of recession and people are looking to what will make them feel better off. Are they going to find it 
in this announcement and the answer as we've just been hearing is probably not. There is that temptation to have a few sweeteners at the moment but when you look at how tight that headroom is in historic terms our gamble is that you're not going to see very much given away and there's another reason as well because when we talk about inflation falling uh, don't forget there are still risks out there particularly when we look at what's happening further afield in geopolitical terms and we can see how quickly commodity prices can blow us off course so the chance is not going to want to add to any potential pressures that are in the system right now so um, having said all that what can we expect, uh, particularly bearing in mind when you look at what's uh, in the plans for further afield, as we were hearing there from James, those spending plans post-election look pretty tight indeed. So the temptation perhaps is to give away a little bit, but wait until that budget come at the spring. Instead, we think there's going to be some sort of themes that emerge when you look at what happens in the autumn statement. And a key one is probably going to be sort of trade-offs and fairness. Um, we heard there from James about uh, what's going to happen with working age benefits, and that's something that's a big question mark over. Um, also, the triple lock and pensions, you know, are they going to submit to that temptation to give in, keep those voters happy, but also sign off effectively on that ticking £45 billion time bomb, because that's how much extra it could cost us uh, in just a couple of decades' time, and, and hand over that challenge to whoever's in, in Downing Street next. Um, there's also uh, the national living wage, of course, and we'll have confirmation on what that rate is going to be. Now, this, as we've been hearing from the Resolution Foundation, has been great news for many workers up and down the country in the last few years. and It's helped to offset some of that burden of the cost of living crisis for those lower down the income scale. But um, talking to businesses, and in fact, that's where I'm heading next, is to talk to some of those businesses who are thinking about what happens in the coming years, they've seen their situation flip in recent months. They've gone from worrying about skill shortages in some of these industries to worrying about how are we going to keep the business on track? How can we afford higher wages? Can we afford to keep up with our hiring plans? And it's not just the thing we keep hearing is it's not just about the minimum wage, the national living wage. It's about what happens to those in the pay scales above that as well. So that's that kind of trade-off to consider. So we'll hear the chance of celebrating that, but there'll be a different impact because most of that burden falls, obviously, on the private sector. Um, and uh, alongside that, of course, we're going to hear some things, as, as I think Torsten said, there's going to be a lot of talk uh, and fairly few concrete measures out there, but a lot of talk about growth. So uh, are we going to hear more about those incentives to get people back to work? What does that look like in practice? Is it going to be carrot and stick? Are you going to have those incentives for companies to hire more long-term sick people, have better occupational health schemes out there? But how does that fall at a time when you are looking perhaps at a weaker demand environment? Um, businesses, that investment relief we were hearing about there, is that going to be extended? Is the uncertainty about that though going to continue? until the budget and what does that mean for businesses making plans and we've also heard a lot about fiscal drag um, over the last which is which is great because there's that realization that you know this thing that's happened particularly when it comes to income tax brackets is not invisible it is being felt by people and it's being brought more into public discourse i think if you mentioned the words fiscal drag 10 years ago they would have wondered what that was or perhaps some you know some new some new is that, is that what they're saying in the pub now? That is what they're saying in the pub. That is what, exactly what they're talking about, fiscal drag. But what we don't talk about when it comes to fiscal drag is VAT so much. And that, um, that boundary at which you register for VAT has been frozen too for some time. And if you look at how that's impacting um, behaviour 
uh, and the incentives to actually earn more, uh, it's having quite a bizarre effect. If you look at what the OBR did in its last report, it's found some clustering below that threshold of £85,000. So that is holding the economy back in some ways. All those kind of things have to be ironed out. This is Will the threshold they? where a company has to register for register VAT, VAT, which they don't want to do in lots of cases. No, because it is a lot of extra work. Um, and also, are we going to see more detailed plans out there for example, about how pension funds can invest in unlisted companies, uh, ISAs, are we going to see raising thresholds there, and encouragement to invest more widely? So all those questions have got to be answered. Um, and I think I've probably gone over my time. I, but just to say, I recently um, spoke to Carolyn McCall, the chief executive of ITV, for an event. And uh, what she said was, what businesses like mine need to see is have confidence that we have a growing economy. And she said, I look at any of the major political parties out there, I cannot see a plan. At the moment, it doesn't sound like this one's going to be a game changer. Um, sweeteners, not quite sure what that's going to look like, um, but uh, I think that one we're going to hold off until the budget. But it'd be very strange if we don't see something. You can't just give people a cup of tea without a biscuit, as a Resolution Foundation knows. You should always have a biscuit. Thank you very much. <laughs> I went in to see a minister last week. I didn't even get a cup of tea. <laughs> Austerity is so bad. A glass of water if you're lucky. The biscuit, you dream of biscuits. <laughs> right. <laughs> Michael, over to you. Now we're gonna, some of this is going to get techie, people. Pay attention thank to you. Michael. Um, and uh, thank you all for coming along. So I thought I'd talk about three things. I'll talk about the state of the economy, the, the state, state of the public finances, and the fiscal rules uh, which constrain fiscal policy including the effects of APF transfers. I've gone the wrong way, haven't I? I apologise. So we've got to go way, all the way, way through. No, 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 you start in the right place. It's, it's counterintuitively down for... We can do this, we can do this. Like this is it. We're getting there. This is productivity <laughs> growth okay. happening live. So this Here is we go. The, right. There we go. That's right. It. So on the economic outlook, look, the short version, it's grim. The <laughs> MPC said last week, that it's sort of 50-50 as to whether the UK economy goes into recession in the coming year. And I think that's a reasonable estimate. Indeed, it's, all, it's possible that growth already is negative. Uh, we get the Q3 GDP figures on Friday. I think they're flat or perhaps slightly negative. GDP growth for Q4 also flat to slightly negative. The corporate sector is feeling the squeeze already in a major way. Although bank rate is slightly lower than the peak of 2007, credit spreads are wider. And so the average interest rate on new bank loans to companies already is pretty close to the pre-GFC peak. And as you can see in the right-hand chart, the share of firms reporting that, high, that the cost of finance is deterring investment has risen sharply in both manufacturing and services. Households still have most of the squeeze yet to come. Um, if you look since the start of the rise in interest rates, the average interest rate on the stock of mortgages is up by less than one and a half percentage points, even while bank rate has risen by more than five percentage points. And so when the Bank of England are talking about how much of the effect of rising interest rates is still yet to come through, that's really the channel. We've had somewhere around a quarter to a third of the squeeze on household cash flows from the rise in mortgage rates. And every month, every quarter, a lot of households are facing, ri facing rising mortgage bills as previously low interest rate fixed mortgages expire and have to be refixed. And even if bank rate doesn't rise further, you'll still get this constant ongoing drag from mortgage resets over the next couple of years. 
On the fiscal outlook, there's a range of moving parts in the forecast. The OBR could plausibly project the fiscal outlook is slightly better than in March. They could also plausibly project that it's slightly worse. If it happens to come out that they say the fiscal forecast is slightly better, a sensible chancellor recognising that there's still many moving parts would not um, use that money to finance tax cuts. One who is not trying to be reckless would keep that money in reserve for the possibility that the next time around that the OBR go through their forecasts, they will come up with something which is slightly worse. So the moving parts, higher inflation in the first year, as James said, has improved the fiscal position through higher tax revenues, higher debt service costs in coming years, greater APF losses. I'll come back to this. In the March budget, the, a the OBR estimated APF losses to be about 20 billion a year over the next five years. My estimate, more like 35 billion a year. Michael, tell us all what APF losses are. APF losses is losses on the Bank of England's asset purchase fund, the, the QE gilts. And these losses come about partly through the gap on the interest rates on banks' reserves, which are, charged, which are paid at bank rate. So they're now paying out interest costs of 5.25%, and the relatively low yield on the gilts held by the APF. They were bought when gilt yields were much lower than they are now. So there's a sort of big running yield gap. And those losses partly come about through capital losses on the gilts when they're sold. And those capital losses are counted against the, the um, public debt total when the gilts are sold. So the reasons for higher APF losses is because bank rate is higher, so the running yield cost is greater. The price of gilts has gone down. And the Bank of England has said that they're going to increase the pace of APF sales in coming years. So that will be adverse for the public finances, uh, lower growth in the coming year, adverse for the public finances. But if the, M if the OBR don't change their potential growth estimate, it balances out over five years. Higher inflation than their previous forecast helps the public finances. But I would note that the OBR's forecast for potential growth is pretty optimistic compared to other forecasts. It's well above those of the IMF and the Bank of England. So it's also possible they will lower their potential growth forecast, which will make the fiscal outlook worse. A chancellor who is not being reckless would not bank any windfall gains which happen to show up from this run of the forecast. You certainly wouldn't use them to cut taxes on the assumption that you can deliver an implausible squeeze in public spending in real terms. To do that would not quite be the sort of Liz Truss scale of recklessness. But it would be getting a bit in that direction. On the um, fiscal rules, the fiscal rules are an essential part of the UK's public finances framework, as we saw when Liz Truss tried to sidestep them a year ago. The rules as they are framed now, I think, don't quite work, and we need a reset. I would shift to a shorter horizon for the debt rule and a target for the cyclically adjusted current balance. But the other issue is that, perhaps unforeseen when the fiscal rules were devised, the issues of an um, escape clause when you're at the effective lower bound for monetary policy and how to deal with losses on APF gilts as and when they are sold. As I said, these are going to make quite a big difference 
to the debt outlook in coming years compared to whatever the, your neutral, your starting point for the fiscal position would have been. What I'll just show you here is just taking the OBR's estimates for the debt ratio in March. I haven't updated anything else for inflation, nominal GDP growth or anything. That's the blue line. Excluding APF losses, it was the red line at the bottom. Including my estimate now for APF losses, you get the yellow line at the top. Significant effect on the fiscal arithmetic. Now, I stress this is my estimate of the APF losses. Uh, the Bank of England published their quarterly APF uh, report on Friday, suggests if anything, the APF losses may be slightly greater than I had estimated. Um, so how should we deal with this in the fiscal rules? My view is basically these should not be in the debt measure which is used for the fiscal rules. The fiscal rules were suspended appropriately during the pandemic and during the GFC in order to allow the government to put in place the necessary fiscal measures to cope with those crises. Had they failed to do so, those shocks could have been much worse in terms of the effects on unemployment, business investment and long-term scarring. The losses on the QE gilts are really part of those crisis response measures. Of course, they do add to public debt, and that's the reason why outside crises we should be aiming to have a falling public debt ratio. But we should not be seeking to constrain the public finances in the, on the year-to-year -year path, which is dependent on the exact pace of APF rundown. There's a broader issue with the uh, fiscal rules that I think this has become clearer over the last 20 to 25 years since they were first introduced, which is they are not tight enough to ensure fiscal sustainability. The rules to aim for a cyclically adjusted current balance or have been met in the forecast, but rarely in reality. And even with the debt rule aiming to reduce public debt five years ahead, the public debt ratio has ratcheted upwards because of a series of successive crises. If you assume that future shocks will come around with anything like the frequency of the last 20 or 30 years, then the debt rule, which only just requires us to reduce public debt outside crises, will leave the debt ratio ratcheting higher over time. So take the APF effect out of the fiscal rules, but make them tighter when you're outside crises in order to ensure that we always have adequate fiscal space to respond to whatever crises might come about. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Michael. Right, we'll come back to some of those um, uh, later. There's loads there now. Was it, is there an election this year? Uh, well, it could just be the year after, couldn't it? By whistle. You can tell us the answer about that. Is, is it good? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't have the answer to that. Also, I was really excited when I was invited to do this panel, and the more that the, I read the report over the weekend, and I've listened to you all, well, boring and dull. I mean, so I'm supposed to read the signals from this. You're calling us boring. <laughs> no, you are <laughs> I'm not sure wonderful. Oh, right, okay. But um, my role was to read the signals from the autumn <laughs> statement to think about the Conservatives' pitch for the next election. Well, I've now been told that there will be no signals. So bear with me. But I think. There are likely to be some um, very quiet signals that we can use to try and think about how are the Conservatives going to tackle the next election. And I think one of the things that we really need to bear in mind is that under Rishi Sunak, the Conservatives have regained a certain amount of credibility in terms of managing the economy. They're really not going to want to damage that, which creates an extra level of um, restraint 
beyond these kind of normative requirements that have been described by everybody else. Um, and actually, if you think about the polling, the reaction to the Liz Truss um, government was very similar in polling to the ERM crisis. So the idea that the Conservatives get, get back Remind from Remind everyone the ERM crisis? I think there's, I'm asking economists to do that. You're not the nature of the crisis. When, who? Right, I, I, I would rather hand that over to you, Torsten. The early 90s, yeah, we decided that it would be a mechanism. good idea to fix our exchange rate versus a basket of European currencies. That turned out to be a high-risk game at the exact rate of time at which we did it. Just at the, we then had a large recession as interest rates shot up to try to deal with pressure on the currency yes. peg. Large disaster, lots of tax rises. Uh, people feeling Tories that they might knowledge. lose their homes overnight because interest. A lot of people had, yeah. um, a lot of people didn't have fixed-term mortgages, so they were just seeing. I mean, I was fairly young then. But the main point is, there was a big <laughs> crisis, and a big crisis a long time before an election, and people were still angry about it in nineteen ninety-seven. Massive crisis. That's, that's the point. And so this was this 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 moment looked the same. So to come back from that is incredibly difficult. But actually, to have got to the point that they have now, they will be quite pleased and wanting to sustain that. But I think we can read into which segments of voters are they really going to try and target in terms of how optimistic they are about how effective they can be. And one of the key divisions in the electorate now is whether you own your home or not. So we tend to look at household income. Um, we look, we've always looked at age. We've looked at social class. But whether you own your home or not is now absolutely key. And if you think about who owns their home outright, it's disproportionately retired older people who are much more likely to vote Conservative anyway. So if the policies that are, are signalled in a weak way in the autumn statement um, seem to be going for that older group rather than thinking about the, everybody, everybody is worried about the cost of living, but those who are not homeowners are much more worried. So when we think about what you were saying, Michael, about the rising costs of um, mortgages and of course rental payments too, everybody who is in rental housing or who is in um, with a mortgage is pretty worried. So that takes us into a younger group of voters. But the last election was very much, I think, about Workington Man and about disaffected, particularly older men in um, formerly um, Labour voting post-industrial areas. Now, if, if we see, and there's very little room to actually offer concrete policies, and instead we see more in this kind of anti-woke space or things like legislating to get rid of tents in public spaces. I think that's more trying to tap into this cultural um, dimension, which might bring some of the Workington men back to the Conservatives maybe, but doesn't address this wider cost of living crisis. And Labour Together recently um, produced an analysis that added Stevenage Woman to Workington Man. And I think that's a really interesting idea of a segment of the electorate, disproportionately women, but men too, um, not the poorest in society, in work, but really, really struggling with the cost of living. And it's those voters in marginal seats and suburban areas that actually will make the difference between whether the Labour Party has a working majority or not. Do we see the Conservatives going after voters like that? Or is it more of a strategy of getting core voters who are already committed to vote Conservative to turn out? And you can see that in um, the recent by-elections, the Conservative narrative is often about actually the Tory voters just didn't come out to vote. So how do we mobilise them to vote? And maybe you can do that without spending that much money if you go down the culture wars line. But there's a really significant risk there because millennials are less interested in that debate. But, and we know that under 50 now, we're 
much more likely to support Labour than Conservative. But I think there's a sense among some in the Conservative Party that the, the headway could be made there. Rishi Sunak is much more popular with that group than the party is. And what's the reason for that gap and what can be done to try and narrow it? And I think if you look what, about what millennials care about, it is housing, it is taxation, and it's the cost of living. So what signals could you send at this point that we're listening and we care about you that then could be something bigger in the budget? Um, so I, I think things like rolling back towards net zero, that's all moving away from that group of voters. Um, but actually, if we think about what's been the really big promise commitment in financial terms recently, it's around um, improvements in the availability of childcare. That is exactly what Stevenage Woman is worried about. The cost of childcare to many of a working population in this country is absolutely massive. So that's a, a really significant signal that's already been made this year and has real financial cost. Now, whether it's properly costed so it'll work and the childcare sector will actually benefit is a big question. But I think that already shows that the Conservatives are thinking about going for a more maximal strategy and reaching beyond those older core um, Conservative voters. So will we see any additional help for first-time buyers. I think that's, whether it's now or whether it's later, it's absolutely essential for the Conservatives, not just in the next election, but in the future, to actually build. The millennials are the first generation that are not getting more Conservative as they get older. So if you're Conservative, you really need to worry about that. Um, inheritance tax, I know Torsten's told me they're not going to do anything about that. Um, I, I didn't say it. I'm not <laughs> saying it that confidently. <laughs> Torsten hasn't said that. But... Um, <laughs> I think if you look at the sort of board, the, 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 the aggregate level, fit, the way people feel about inheritance tax, most people basically think it's a bad idea, but they don't care that much about it. So if you're really going to try and mobilise different groups of voters, that is not where you would address tax. But what about the, the triple lock on pensions? I mean, if I were a conservative strategist, I think I'd be a bit tempted because the older voters are locked in by such a massive extent. I think it depends on how much you're trying to minimise losses and just get core voters out and really mobilise them. Or do you think you have got a chance of creating uh, you know, a situation where I think it's unlikely the Conservatives will have a majority, but could you get no overall control? I, I, you know, I, quite gambly. Well, I don't know, I'm not in charge, <laughs> but I would be quite tempted. And then what about benefits freezes? Well, if you were being purely instrumental, you could see that actually in terms of the Conservative core vote strategy, this may not do them much harm to not, to, to, to not uplift benefits. But I do think the question of child poverty is one of those kind of issues that if mobilised can be incredibly damaging and create a sort of nasty party image that I think Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives will not will not want to be tarnished with. Um, so th those are my um, speculations on what I'm told is going to be a very boring fiscal event. But lots of interesting people talking about it. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Rosie. Very good. The, um, great. Right. OK, we've got about uh, half an hour. As I said, you can put questions in on Slido, which is hashtag autumn statement, or you can put your hand up in the room. Heads up that we're going to lose Darshini at 22 to go and interview punters for the Real BBC. People. Real people, okay. even realer than us. Interesting, exciting people. More exciting than us. Not more exciting than us, <laughs> just different. Okay, so I thought we'd do a bit, let's do a bit on the economy, let's do, and how that relates to politics, a bit on the fiscal, and then there's some individual policy areas we should definitely make sure um, uh, that we pick up on. So just on the economy, first of all, so what James was saying to you is, and, and actually so is Michael, which is you've got basically a slightly better past than you expected back in March. 
So most things have gone a bit better, employment, GDP since March. The um, wages, both real and nominal wages, slightly better than we expected. The, um, uh, but the future looks rubbish. That's basically broadly, to paraphrase. There's about 10 charts doing that, but you can get to the punchline. The, um, now, if that happens, so at one level you'd think, right, this is quite good news for the Chancellor. Things went a bit better than the you know, moaners that the OBR said back in March, and now it's actually like a bit happy days. But really, on the politics of this, there's a great question here, which is uh, from Mark, which we'll bring up on the screen, which is basically saying, look, if that means that you're, I mean, Michael was saying to you, like, 50-50 recession, technically or otherwise, right now, is this actually better, or would it have been better to have got some of the pain out of the way? Has the pain just been delayed into the immediate run-up to an election? Is this a disaster? And what does that actually mean for when we get an election? Obviously, the BBC can't predict when an election happens, Darshini, so you're off the hook. The, um, but what do you think? The, uh, are we gonna get, you can go first on. Are we getting, does, it, does the fact that it's looking a bit grimmer in the immediate outlook mean we are less likely to get a spring election or not? And then, Michael, we can come to you on. And what do you think about timings of things feeling a bit grim? I'm going to punt for no, because I think you just want the polls to be looking a bit better. But then I, I'm interested, I'm, I know more about polls than economics. Oh, good. Michael? <laughs> uh, in terms of when things feel grim, I think it's now and throughout the next year. <laughs> right, you're, you're a real perker perker. Um, on the second question, um, will interest rates stay high for another few years? I, have to say, I think interest rates will be coming down in the next year. Not quickly, not in the next couple of quarters, but perhaps from the third quarter of next year and perhaps a little faster and markets currently pricing based on a weak, um, a weak economic outlook. And inflation may well also fall a bit faster than the MPC are expecting over the next year. Which, to be fair, is what the OBR basically... If you want differences between the OBR and the Bank of England at the moment, Michael raised one big one, which is the OBR is much perkier about the British economy in the medium term. But another more shorter-term one that does matter for the numbers James showed you is that the Bank of England is expecting to be to do really well themselves, right? So they're expecting to come down and hit the 2% inflation target and stay there. The OBR think inflation's heading towards zero. They, um, so it's been higher than they thought in the last year, but it undershoots the target. Quite yeah, but, so, but in the coming year, the MPC's inflation forecasts are actually quite sticky. So they have inflation falling really quite slowly. We've seen in the last quarter, inflation fell, fell faster than the MPC had expected. And I think the risks are on the side that in the coming year, yeah. inflation will continue to fall faster. Which is basically the OBR's um, view. On this election timing thing, so one way of thinking about this is you can try and be really clever and be like, when's the recession? Does it be a spring or an autumn election? I think your method is actually best, which is, has any government ever called an early election when they were 15, 20 points behind in the polls? Anyone since the Second World War? No. So. Let's, if no one's ever done it, there's a reason they've not done it, because losing is not nice, I say as someone that has like walked out of Downing Street having been kicked in the face. Uh, it's, you, you try not to do that, okay? you're trying to stay in Downing Street, so you just don't call it until at least the autumn. The only reason to call it not at the very last minute is it's going to be a bit awkward if you're running alongside Trump in the run-up in the middle of November. So you may not want to be like, it's like me and Trump versus Biden and Starmer, the only reason. So you might go in October, but like, you don't call it early. You don't call it early. But that's like, you know, I know you've got to fill columns for all the way. Those political journalists here have got to fill columns all the way through the entire year. But it's not happening early, people. Right, let's take a question in the room. Let's take two questions in the room. Got some mics. Is a microphone coming, sir? Hi. Um, Michael provided a sort of principled argument why the Chancellor might change the definition of the, of the fiscal rules. 
Um, and I just wonder, would that change your calculations of headroom, James? Um, because yeah. no one else, most people in the room, won't understand what taking APC costs out means, and then he'll be told it's the right thing to do. So that looks like an absolute no-brainer. Great. I'll take a question from George as well. Thank you. Um, thanks for the presentations. I think we can all agree that the <laughs> Chancellor, whoever the Chancellor is, is going to cut taxes between now and the election. Um, and you hear people in the Treasury say, well, we can't cut taxes in the autumn statement because it would be inflationary. Is there a, can I ask the panel, is there actually a, an economic an inflationary reason not to cut taxes in the autumn, but it's okay to do it three months later in a spring budget, or is this all <laughs> down to political timing and wanting to have a sort of big tax cutting budget before the election? Such a cynic, George. <laughs> the, um, okay, let's do debt. Let's do debt rules, and then because I've got some bad news, which is the debt rule debate is actually more complicated than just the APF. And there's a question here from someone online which gets at some of this, um, which is so we use a net debt rule in the UK. Largely, everyone's still nodding, right? That's what we normally use. This, we currently target one that takes out um, some elements of uh, the Bank of England, the, um, so their stock of assets. The, um, we've then got a proposal from Michael to take out the effect on the central government balance sheet of the APF, which, as he explained to you excellently just now, there's another set of people out there who would also like us to move to a... a um, wider general government debt rule, the, um, uh, which, which they do use in some other countries, which I think Margaret Thatcher got us away from. Anyone old enough to be nodding with me? I'm pretty sure Margaret Thatcher moved us away from this because at the time of privatisation. Less wide. The, um, less okay. wide. Anyway, go on. So, James, tell us what you want. <laughs> what are we going to get? Well, so, so the, the big thing about this, uh, taking out the, the APF thing, so, so it's a big distortion, but two things to to bear in mind. So do, do you want the, the losses that the Bank of England is crystallising on its QE balance sheet to affect your fiscal policy? Well, you still have to find money to, to meet these losses. So they, they are a sort of actual thing. Um, so they will affect, so, so we should keep that in mind. The other thing is, you know, given what's happened uh, a year ago, as we've been talking about, do the government want to be the ones um, saying, oh, we might do some tax cuts and some other irresponsible things, and by the way, we don't like the fiscal target that we set for ourselves, so we're now going to change it. So that, you know, again, I think that will be the, the thing that is weighing on them. But as far as these definitions go, I think there's a really strong case. There was a, um, uh, this is slightly in the weeds, but the, there was a Bank of England scheme put in place during the pandemic that was shrinking down, which was meaning that um, public sector debt as a whole was falling quite sharply. Um, and it was a good idea to exclude the, the uh, term funding scheme, which was a big scheme during, uh, during previous crisis, to, to exclude that from the debt measure. So that is a good idea. But now that has gone, what we're left with is the, the distortion from APF losses. And um, as the Bank of England accelerates or slows down or buys and sells, uh, sells different, uh, different guilt, that will move around and actually affect the government's policy. Yeah. So that's why Michael is... is that's the, that's the key thing to understand, right? It's the pace. The Bank of England is independent. It's deciding its pace of flogging guilt from the APF, right? 
so independent monetary policy is deciding when it sells those things. But that is because it's included within the fiscal rule, it's running directly into fiscal decision making on a year by year basis. And so if you're worried about independent Bank of England and tension with the Treasury, that's making you a bit nervous. But the flip side, as James said, is it's a real impact on debt. The, um, so you what you really want is to be kind of smoothing through that so that over time debt is falling including that taking that into account but you're not doing nuts things year to year to, to, to respond to the bank of england uh, doing it but you know you can't correct so I mean, if, if, if i can come in i think there is a principal case to exclude the apf transfers from the debt measure and it rests on first these were crisis response measures and the correct thing to do is to aim for a steadily falling debt ratio outside crises rather than constrain yourself in the first few years after crises and the second is for independence of monetary policy and fiscal policy. Under the current system, the Treasury have, have an incentive to seek to influence the pace of APF rundown because that has a very real powerful effect on their fiscal space. And I would rather that those two areas, fiscal policy and monetary policy, are as far as possible kept separate. In terms of the other debt measures, I, to me, the reason for not shifting to general government debt is that you then lose that point of um, sort of control over the borrowing of public corporations. And I think that's the reason why, in the first place, the fiscal rules went to a wide measure. Mm -hmm. So I would favour a wide, comprehensive measure. It's just that this particular issue of APF transfers shouldn't be in it. Very good. Right. The, um, we've got loads of great questions. So let's try and let's do a bit more on the big picture and then let's go to some of the specific um uh questions so on um uh, on how much monetary pain has already come through so you were talking about mm -hmm. interviews you've been doing yeah. with some current mpc members and if you look at what the bank of england published last week there's a chart in their latest forecast saying basically that they think not a lot of the pain in fact, i was quite surprised by how little of the pain they have as in, uh, already come through so rather than worrying about whether monetary and government policy is in tension in an election year because of the fiscal rules. I mean, should we just worry about the fact that the punters are going to be really, really pissed off? Punters are going to be pissed off. I mean, you know, the, the good news is, and I'll, I'll, yeah, the, yeah I'll, I, was, I was just saying the question you just asked, I'll, I'll uh, address that one as well. Uh, punters are going to be pissed off. I think that's a given. Um, things are going to feel a lot worse for a lot of people. Not as bad over the last year, by the way, as the OBR had thought. If you look at when they evaluated their forecasts and where they'd gone wrong, and, you know, quite frankly, everyone went wrong over the last year. Uh, one of the things, one of the you know, not so bad bits of news is real... Disposable incomes didn't fall quite as much as they'd feared, but they've still fallen by quite a bit. So, you know, as we look over the next year, and it's Swati Dinger I was talking to, um, who's been the member of the MPC who's voted most consistently to leave rates where they were over the last year or so. And her fear was that 75% of the pain, so if we look, not, we're not just talking about that increase, obviously, in um, borrowing repayments, we're talking about what happens to spending, we're talking about what happens to jobs, that sort of filtering across the economy, Three quarters of that is yet to happen. And, you know, rule of thumb, it could take a year to two for that to happen. So when we're talking about, you know, uh, tax cuts now or the budget, um, you know, there's a couple of reasons why you might want to wait if you're the Chancellor until the budget. Although I've got to say, I used to play, do you remember that game they used to have about um, managing the economy? I think the Bank of England used to do it. No. Uh, it was amazing, you know, how could it hit inflation target? You could be the Chancellor. And I, I remember crashing that machine within about 30 seconds. So maybe I shouldn't be talking about this. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you may want to leave this 
you know, even though it's only four months or so, uh, partly because uh, of the uncertainty over the amount of headroom you've got. And what you don't want to get to is that stage just before an election where the OBR brings out another set of forecasts and say, actually, it's looking a lot worse and you're not going to meet those rules chances are. Um, you also want to make sure you empty out what's in the kitty uh, just in case somebody else comes in and takes over after the election. Don't give them any headroom. Um, but there's also that difficult balancing out. So people are going to be feeling that pinch as we go into next spring a bit more. You can give them a bit more back. And also there's that issue that Michael was talking about before, the fact that the Bank of England at the moment thinks that the fall in inflation is going to be relatively slow. It's going to be pretty sticky. It's also pointing to some upside risks out there from oil prices in particular. Um, so once you've got those things out the way, perhaps you might feel a bit more confident about cutting uh, taxes or giving money away in some other form without pushing that particular risk up again. Yeah. The, um, yeah, so sorry we didn't ask your question, George. So the, um, I think that's broadly, that's basically right. The, um, there's, there's no difference on the economics really about tax cuts in the autumn versus tax cuts in March. And actually the issue on the impact on inflation, unless it was huge, isn't really the issue. The constraint on tax cuts is the public finances, not the level of inflation as it usually um, is in most of the real world. And it's that pressure. It's the chart that J James showed you about what's penciled in to happen to public services is why you can't really afford tax cuts. It's got nothing to do with um, what is going on in the unless you were absolutely enormous in you know and then and there's no plausible route to absolutely enormous tax cuts um right now let's go let's use that as a kick into um into tax cuts though so in tax taxes in general so big picture remember big row going on in the conservative party how have we managed to get ourselves elected and be in power for 13 years and end up with the highest tax burden in 70 years. That wasn't the plan. Richard Sinek's first maiden speech in the House of Commons was all about shrinking the state. A bit surprising they've ended up with a much bigger state, although some of that is actually intentional, like Jeremy Hunt's announcement on childcare back in March. Big increase in the role of the state. You go back to the 1990s, nobody was calling for the state to provide uh, childcare. Politics moves on some of these things. That's a big extension of the state into childcare happening recently. So there's a few things that going from James, there's quite a lot of moving parts in how you think about taxes. So James's pre first presentation has told you taxes are higher in cash terms because the economy is bigger in cash terms. That's the 43 billion or so, 40 billion old of higher tax revenues. If you, we care about real taxes, actually has the economy got more tax rich or are we doing, or have you put up taxes? Where well, we have done a bit, the fiscal drag does give us a bit of that. But tell us, but t give us some good news for the Tory MPs on the, Higher GDP and the well, tax well, well, if you if you restate the amount of tax we had in March on the new nominal GDP basis, then it looks lower. That, so people should be happy about that. But you know, a key reason that is happening is because we are you know the economy has got larger. More people have moved into higher tax brackets. We're recording um, you know higher levels of income tax and other uh, income related taxes. So we're we're basically rising. Uh, we're taking more tax out for um, uh, of those income. So when you take that into account, you'll have taxes that are uh, are not um, all that changed. I mean, the answer to this question, I think, is basically yes. It's a question of timing. So we've got public services that are struggling. We've got spending plans that are essentially a fiction, completely undeliverable. So unless there's going to be a big change in what the government is actually spending money on, the reality is 
um, we're going to need higher taxes. And, you know, there's lots of ways you can deliver higher taxes without clobbering growth, but that's not the debate at the moment. But look, um, the underlying issue here is low potential growth in the UK. So the, M the Bank of England's estimate is the potential growth in the economy in the next few years will be about 1% per year. Add in population growth, and that's GDP per head, of maybe half a percent. Then you allow for effects on public finances of demographics, rising debt surface costs. No matter how you cut it, that's going to be a painful squeeze of little or no growth in public spending and or a rising tax burden. And I think really for most of the last 10 years, there hasn't been a serious debate about measures to lift potential growth. Indeed, through low public investment and, of course, Brexit, the government's actions have made potential growth worse. Uh, to my mind, the kind of things that you would be looking at is higher public investment, closer trade links with Europe, greater emphasis on maths and science and education. You can give Rishi Sunak a small mark for highlighting maths, but only a very small mark because we don't employ enough maths teachers to meet his aim, and build more houses. The childcare things in the budget, I think, were a sensible small step, but they didn't fund them. So those kind of elements, and perhaps I'm sure you I have I think that's more. a bit mean on them. I think they funded them quite a bit. That's what the sector says. But if I'm running a nursery, that's what I'd be saying too. I think the there's too many researchers in there. But they, they didn't add to the overall spending plan. They did. Okay. They did. All right. In that case, nice I, would, to, I would give them nice more to, of a credit. I think you give them a credit plus. Um, but that's like one out of five okay. across <laughs> the, the range of issues. <laughs> Um, yeah. So I think until we break out of low potential growth, the fiscal choices are painful. They're definitely good. Let's, just to get a bit perkier, because it's all getting a bit grim, <laughs> let's just go on what could go right. Okay, like, so, what, so there's lots of upward pressures on taxes at the moment. The um, things that could push the other way in time, uh, so I'll give one and I'll give other people a chance to think of some, because we're going so it could turn out that just interest rates aren't. So markets are now assuming interest rates because basically no one knows what medium-term interest rates look like anymore. Okay, so they're basically just assuming they stay more or less where they are today. Okay, they've got a bit worried about sovereigns being a bit dodgier than they thought. Where they're like, right, we've got four and a half, five percent interest rates forever. I think it's perfect uh, with huge uncertainty, but it's perfectly possible rather than five percent, it's three percent in two years' time. Perfectly possible. The, um, and anyone that feels really confident either way is drinking something special. The, um, so that could materially reduce the need for a higher tax take than you've got today. So that's a bit of good news. Anyone else got some perk to offer? Come on, Darshini. Yeah, I think there's uh, plenty of room for cheer. Um, this time last year, Bank of England was predicting was it the lengthiest recession since the 1930s. That did not come to pass. Uh, who knows what's going to happen over the They keep delaying the they recession keep, in the They keep the pushing it back. Yeah, pushing Still back. Still coming. You know, series 2 is coming next year. Um, that's a serious point, though. The Bank of England's forecast, how, how many? It, it basically is just no growth forever. Five quarters of zero. Five, Five quarters. quarters of zero. Absolutely nothing. Flat Happy line. days. I thought, days. Was, I thought it was a perky one. Well, exactly. I'm trying to say things <laughs> could be better than that. Last year, they were too gloomy. You know, who knows? Maybe things could turn out better. Another thing to be slightly you know, more upbeat about, we talked about the tax burden, right? And that has been going up, and it's, it, it still is higher than many people would like to see. But we're still pretty much middle of the table, aren't we? When you look at rich countries out there and, yeah. and Europe. So... It's not as bad as it could be. Anyone got any perk? Come on. Well, I think we could have, after the next election, looking where public opinion is, a little bit of a more positive relationship with Europe. I mean, maybe that's wildly optimistic. Well, that may or may not be perky, depending <laughs> on your perspective. No, no, but economically. <laughs> I just mean economically. Okay, very good. Okay, let's, why don't we, there's a question from David here. 
Um, uh, why don't you have a go at this first, which is basically, so at the moment, everyone, so if you're a politician, you're running for office this year, you're probably not banging on about either the big tax cuts, sorry, tax rises you've already implemented, you're the government, right? they're, they're probably, probably not going to put that on the leaflet, I'm assuming. <laughs> they, um, uh, and if you're Labour, you're very nervous about being accused of further tax rises being planned after the election. They, um, so the question is, in terms of how they answer those questions, do you think they have left themselves wriggle room to put up the question, to pull up taxes if they actually need to? What do you think, Rosie? I think it's really difficult unless we get some of the perkiness you've been describing. Because I think both parties have got really strong reasons to want to seem to be economically... But on the politics, do you think they've given themselves enough wriggle room? As in, so if I'm right, so when Rachel Reeves is asked, um, uh, all these people want you to put up capital gains tax, she says, I paraphrase, I have no plans to put up capital gains tax, you sicko, asking me that question. <laughs> she doesn't say... I'm definitely never raising capital gains tax in any circumstances, and let me list those circumstances in which I will never ever raise capital gains tax. I mean, there's tax. always wriggle room for politicians to change their mind. There is, although they try quite hard. So I know, I know this is unfashionable, but having watched them do this, they do try quite hard not to outright lie. Which they is try a really quite, good thing. It is good. Yeah. They do try. They do, some I promise you. Yes, yeah, some. Some are less fussed. <laughs> But those people have stopped being MPs recently. They, um, uh, they but they do actually like duck and weave. Like, why do lots of people hate watching politicians give interviews? Like, often they're like, it's because they're slippery. Actually, it's often because they are trying really hard not to lie. It's because they're trying really hard to be like, okay, I want to give you a kind of answer in the space in which you want to hear an answer, but I don't want to say something that is definitely going to be. They're not all, you know, evil. Well, if you're, cynics. if you're saying, are we hearing enough equivocating to think that there yes. might be some wriggle room? The yes. answer is yes. Yes, right. <laughs> I think there's enough equivocating going on. The, um, uh, let's get a question here. We've got a microphone to the front. In fact, we'll take two questions in there. Anyone hanging around with a microphone? Emma, your microphone down here. <laughs> George had a question. Emma, Thank you. I'm in pursuit of perkiness. Good. Uh, so we've got a King's Speech coming up, possibly a pensions bill. They're going to get all that pension fund money invested in the economy, and that will produce perkiness. Uh, discuss. Okay. Well, for those, again, not everyone is, spends their life in the pensions industry, which is obviously a good lifestyle choice that you have made. But tell them what we're actually expecting to see. So Mansion House speech back in July, Jeremy Hunt talked about getting the pensions sector to invest in uh, infrastructure, in uh, non-listed assets, in generally pushing more pension fund money back into the UK economy. And get a bit more patriotic, really, which is more British. British pensions for British companies. The, um, right, who wants to take pensions? Michael? You got anything to say on pensions? I, honestly, I, I don't think this is anything which is going to affect potential growth in the next five years. Right. Um, I, I think it's a substitute for a growth strategy. So that means not good. <laughs> James, can you give us a bit perkier? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm I was going to say, it felt, like, felt like you prejudged the, the answer to that by, by bringing Michael in on that. The, the, uh, <laughs> uh, I feel like Michael is, is stealing my doomster uh, label here. But anyway, the, the, we need to do more investment, that is clear. Um, the government needs to do more public investment, so that's you know a, a very sort of obvious way you can make that happen. How can you tease more private investment out of the private sector? People have argued, we have argued um, uh, as well that, that you could do more to um, not only try and change the composition of portfolios, which seems to be what the government wants to do, but to get the investment sector to be a bit more active in its um, 
in its involvement with the corporate sector. So drive a bit higher performance, push that. So, you know, there are estimates out there that suggest that could have a, a, a decent boost to investment. And I think more generally, if you had a, you know, I think this is what Michael is calling for, if you had a uh, coherent, um, let's focus on the strengths of the UK economy, let's boost investment, let's, um, you know, push growth um, hard, but do it in a uh, coherent way that thinks really uh, in a clear way about what's going on with potential, you could have faster growth. I mean, there has been big headwinds to growth over the past few years. This is not as good as it gets. Um, and as, Tor as Torsten always reminds me, that, that it's possible we won't have another pandemic in the next few years, so things might not be, we might get some good news rather than bad news. Your perkiness is not a pandemic. Right. The, um, we, need to get, we need to get your expectations <laughs> of life up. The, um, just to be a bit perky about the government stuff. So uh, what's going on in the pension industry, some of which I'm less put care about, which is like, could you please sign up to promise to spend a bit more, to invest a bit more in certain kinds of assets? Meh. That kind of here, here there. But actually, the consolidation of pension funds is definitely where we should be going. We've been way too hands off. In terms of like, in terms of, we care about individual savers within our pensions industry, but we also care about the what the pensions industry does for the infrastructure, the like institutional infrastructure of our economy. There aren't enough rich people in Britain, so like the only the only large amounts of um, funds that are available in Britain are basically pension funds, the, um, and they are far too diffuse. And getting them more concentrated isn't, although the government talks about it like this, as James said, in, is they talk about it in terms of providing finance to firms. I think that's basically irrelevant. We can get finance if you want it, but more concentrated ownership of British companies by much, much bigger pension funds is our only plausible route to getting active shareholders back into Britain. And we definitely need that because our managers basically seem allergic to investing in anything, even when returns can be made. So we need to get on with it. So I'm pro what he's trying to do just for different reasons than he is. Let's get a question from the front, and then I'm going to give us a poll to wrap us up. Who wants a question? Hi, uh, George Buckley from Nomura. Um, I had a question just going back to probably a nuanced question about the timing of uh, potential uh, fiscal loosening. Yep. Uh, obviously, governments loosen fiscal policy ahead of elections. Uh, there's a question about whether you want to loosen it in November or March. W what is the sort of, do we have a sense of the optimal lag of how long it takes for a change in fiscal policy well, to affect the policy? A political rag, Polit a political lag. Uh, yes, yeah, so how long it takes for a change in the in, So in this is the opposite of George's one. Okay, this is the opposite of George's There are papers on that, aren't there? There are What's the answer? I, I can't remember. Yes, governments do it. it. <laughs> well, governments, like, the answer is definitely the governments do it. But how long, like, there's all, like the Bank of England does lots of detailed papers on the lag of monetary, <laughs> monetary policy into inflation. How long does it take for tax cuts to get you your votes? I can't answer that. I'm sorry. I don't know because it depends what tax you're cutting and how quickly it got into people's pockets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. I can't remember some, but there are. But it's. I don't think it's that long. I think it is. Yeah, but uh, yeah. But remember the other thing, George, is in the real world. Go back. To ev take the context. The real world is everything's going to be feeling a bit grim, right? And everyone, they're not idiots, so they know their taxes are up overall. So you're not really doing it. You're not actually cutting taxes because you're really expecting the punters to be grateful, unless you're an idiot. And, then, and let's assume people are not idiots. You're cutting taxes so that you can say, yes, it's been tough, taxes has gone up, but look at, look at, you're using it as an indicator. It's not an actual bribe. It's a look at the indication of what we're about. Look at our choices. Have you met the Labour Party? I'd say I would have thought the key constraint is you do it at the last time the OBR exactly. goes to make a forecast before the election. 
because the one thing you cannot do if you're the government is cut taxes and then have the OBR before the election redo their fiscal sums and say, ah, oh, it looks worse. You can't do those things. <laughs> right? So you do that it when exactly the OBR right. are not going to have another chance to come back. Now so that is, surely is March. But Michael, take that to November. its conclusion. Yeah, but what does that mean about, so it definitely means March, and that's exactly right, I agree with that. But that also tells you something about the chances of a January election. Because what happens if you have to wait till January? You don't have to, but you probably feel under a lot of pressure to have another OBR forecast in the autumn. Yes. And you do not want to do that because you've, built your election plans on the March forecast, which you could control. The, um, I told you fiscal forecasts are stupid in British politics, but it's a serious reason why it's much harder to have a January election, as well as the whole like, it's cold and grim and everyone's moody. Right, to wrap us up, we're going to do a poll. Yep, everyone say thank you to Darshini. Go and meet the punters. Thanks for having me. <laughs> right, let's do this. Let's do that. Um, let's use George's question to give us a poll uh, on what's going to happen. So this is a two by two matrix here. What is going to happen? First thing, first two answers are the economic outlook is going to get better, as it has in the last year. The government's going to say, you lot, all your economic forecasters, you're just too moody and grim. Actually, it always turns out better than you think it is going to. That's going to happen again, just as it has happened over the last six months. So things are going to get better. The first answer is, and that will matter for the election. The second answer is, things will get better, but it doesn't matter. The punters have made their mind up. They don't really care about what happens going forward. The second two, the last two are... It's going, to get, it's going to be as grim as these forecasts are implying. Um, but the first is, and that will matter for the election, i.e. the government get more of a kicking than people think. And the third, fourth one is, look, the punters already know everything's really grim. It doesn't matter anymore. The, um, so what? Let's. you can each give us your views on that while everyone else is voting. And then we're going to wrap up. So James, you work here, so you get less time to think which of those is going to happen. Well, I, I, I want to put myself in the, in the Michael world and to link to the question we had earlier. So if you've got inflation falling faster than expected, don't forget the Bank of England have tried to bring inflation down incredibly quickly. So they have been, you know, this is the biggest rate rise, rate increasing cycle in more than 30 years. So they've, they've tried to do it very quickly. We're, we have an output gap open, there's spare capacity. If you have big falls inflation, then you could be in a world where your um, economy might be slightly worse, but you'll be in a sort of um, lower interest rates, um, still some inflation there, and the government looking to sort of back monetary policy up in terms of um, closing the output gap and improving the economy. So I think the economy will potentially get worse, uh, but it would you know, be affecting the election on that basis. So yours is three. It's basically, it's going to be pretty rubbish, but that's going to be accompanied by falling inflation and lower interest rates. And so they'll tell a story about job done, even though people are losing their jobs. Optimistic. Rosie. Oh, I don't like to make financial predictions, but if, if you're right, which you must be because you seem very expert. Have you been watching Britain for the last two decades? Um, then I think I think it could affect the next election because I think interest rates are such housing costs are such a key part of what's hurting people that maybe maybe the Tories won't be hit as hard as it looks right now. Look at you looking. You made me make a prediction. Uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, come on, Michael. Which one are you going for? So you don't like making um, economic forecasts. I don't like making political forecasts. <laughs> I, I know, but so it's good my, to get out of your comfort zone. So my counter to your households will feel better because inflation is falling narrative is unemployment will be going up. And they, many they won't like that. I, I think that's going to be a politically a very difficult backdrop. And 
to um, make the case to people that after a big real wage squeeze, that your wage is now rising in real terms because inflation's falling a bit, but you're at much, much greater risk of losing your job. And by the way, if you fix your mortgage, you're still gonna pay more than you were on your previous one. Uh, I, I don't think you can sort of generate an economic success story in political terms from that. Well, it turns out, see, Michael said he doesn't like predicting politics, but let's bring up the results because they, the, you, all you humans out there, broadly. So Michael wins, which is, it might get better on some measures. It's not actually getting better, but it like the low inflation, low interest rates, uh, but it's basically not going to affect the election. I reckon that's broadly right. Not wanting to discourage you to come to every Resolution Foundation from event from now to the election, but the punters have to a significant degree. Like, you can over, we're over-determined on their views on how the economy is going at this stage. The, um, there's not some like way back to happy, happy times. The, um, but there is for Britain in the longer term, because we're not just about, uh, you know, what happens in politics is really important, but what matters is what happens to the punters in the long term. And there, you know, happy times could be ahead. Now, can we all thank our panel for their thoughts today? especially as they came out of their comfort zones into economic or political <laughs> Thank you all uh, for coming and we'll see you at another Resolution Foundation event soon. Have a good day. It's cold out there. Wrap up warm. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.